Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. If you love Atlanta, you can invest in the big picture. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. I'm Erlon Woods. I'm Nigel Poor. We're the hosts and creators of Ear Hustle from PRX's Radiotopia. Ear Hustle is a show about life inside prison, but it's not your typical prison podcast. In this next season, we've got stories about the objects people keep inside their prison cells. About residents in a women's prison who say they want to stay there. And the most beautiful prison garden. Erlon, I will never forget it. Ear Hustle. Stories about life on the inside told by those who live it. Find Ear Hustle wherever you get your podcasts. Sunny skies. Welcome to this Monday edition of Closer Look. I'm Rose Scott. Coming up in just a moment, the COVID-19 pandemic has led to a rise in cyber crime. We'll hear how Georgia Tech's new School of Cybersecurity and Privacy hopes to meet the workforce demand in this field. To be honest, we need the Atlanta area to, to step up. Atlanta has become a hub of innovation in cybersecurity, and we plan on building on that. We plan on involving uh, industrial partners uh, and government decision makers in the way that we design the program. That conversation coming up in just a moment. But first, we'll begin with this. Hundreds of regal cinemas are closing here in the U.S., and Britain. Cineworld, the British parent company of Regal Cinema, made the announcement earlier today. Now, according to the company, these closures are temporary and due to, quote, this is what they say, an increasingly challenging theatrical landscape and sustained key market closures due to the COVID-19 pandemic. Close quote. 45,000 folks will be affected and 536 theaters here in the U.S. will close. And apparently that means 18 here in Georgia. In other news, today is the final day to register to vote in Georgia for the upcoming big election. Georgians who complete their registration by today's deadline, now needs to be postmarked by today as well, should be eligible to vote in the presidential election. These voters will have the option to head to the polls on November 3rd or request an absentee ballot application to vote by mail or to vote early beginning next Monday. Got all that? And you can check your registration status online at the Georgia Secretary of State's website. Now, of course, many folks will vote by mail due to the coronavirus. As for the number of cases in the U.S., well, they're rising, but slowly, according to Johns Hopkins University. The U.S. is averaging 40,000 new reported cases a day. Here in Georgia, however, the latest figures from the State Department of Public Health show new cases are generally on the decline. 322,925 COVID-19 cases have been confirmed in Georgia dating back to March. But in total, 28,958 have been hospitalized, and of those, 5,363 were ICU admissions. Now 7,162 deaths have been recorded. This is always according to the Department of Public Health. And of course, in related major news, President Donald Trump is now on his fourth day of treatment for COVID-19 at the Walter Reed Military Medical Center. The president did confirm he and the first lady tested positive. This came in a tweet last Friday. And since this news broke, it's led to a lot of questions. We'll join me now to discuss this and other coronavirus-related news. Our WABE health reporter and host of the podcast, Did You Wash Your Hands? Sam Whitehead. Sam, as always, thanks for taking the time. Hey, Rose. Good to talk with you. Well, Sam, it is the news, not just of this nation, but really around the world right now. And that is obviously President Donald Trump testing positive for the coronavirus along with the First Lady and also some members of his 
group, so to speak. At the time of this hour, we know this is always changing. It's been changing over the weekend. Sam, what is the latest that we know on the president and the first lady? Well, the latest that I'm seeing is actually something in the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. You know, as a reporter, we have to rely on each other in these situations. They're reporting that a decision about whether or not to discharge the president is actually going to be coming potentially later today. This is from the AJC, according to the White House Chief of Staff, Mark Meadows. That's not surprising. We heard from the president's doctors yesterday that he could potentially be going home today. So that's kind of in line with that. Um, It is hard to know, really, Rose, how he is doing. Mm -hmm. Um, His doctors have been releasing some kind of contradictory information. People might have caught a briefing they did on Saturday where they were pretty sketchy about the timeline of when the president actually knew he was infected. We do know he has been given two drugs um, that have been shown to have a little bit of effectiveness and helping ease people through, uh, you know, their course of COVID-19. One is a drug called dexamethasone. Apparently his doctors gave this to him after um, the president's oxygen dropped a few times, which can happen with this disease. Um, He's also taking an antiviral drug called remdesivir. Mm -hmm. Um, This is something that the U.S. Food and Drug Administration has approved for emergency use with COVID-19. So, That is kind of all we know, honestly, at this point. There's a lot of speculation out there. It's not hard to find that, but this is kind of what we we do know at this point. Dr. Carlos Del Rio, obviously an epidemiologist at Emory University who's been on this program so many times and you've spoken with so many times. Well, he spoke to NPR on Sunday's Weekend Edition. And, you know, Sam, he said he thinks the president's reported dips in oxygen levels suggest his case of COVID-19 is severe. Take a listen. Once your oxygen saturation drops below 94%, even if it's transitory, you are immediately in the category of no longer mild or moderate, but you're in the category of severe disease. And it is in those patients that both remdesivir and dexamethasone has proven to be effective. And that's exactly what the president has received. He's received remdesivir and he's received dexamethasone. And that's where he currently is right now. Okay, Sam, that's what you just talked about. And given that the president has been given those two particular medications, what does it say to you, someone who's been covering this, in terms of what this means if we will see more and more people receive the same treatment. Well, you know, Rose, I will just preface this by saying I am not a doctor. Sure. So just to, to make sure that that's very clear, you know, Dr. Del Rio, who we know very well, knows a lot more about this stuff than I do. A lot of people do. I mean, I, I don't think these are drugs that have been um, really uncommon up to this point. I mean, rem, remdesivir is a drug, as I understand it, that was originally developed to treat Ebola. It wasn't proven to be effective in phase three clinical trials. And it has been um, approved for emergency use by the FDA for some time. Dexamethasone, not as long, but again, these are drugs that we have seen uh, work for people, at least in limited ways. Again, Mm -hmm. these aren't kind of silver bullet drugs. We don't have those for COVID, um, but they have been shown to reduce the force of uh, disease and reduce the severity of disease. Let's come a little bit closer home and talk about Georgia. Uh, You know, Georgia's metrics in terms of the outbreak continue to show improvement. Where are things right now? Well, you know, Rose, the numbers have been improving, but not kind of at a steady rate, right? Mm-hmm. So we are we are way down if we think of a metric like the number of newly confirmed cases we see each day. Since the peak we saw in the summer, that number is down considerably. But there have been some brief plateaus as that number has dropped. We are in the middle of one right now. Mm-hmm. Over the last six or seven days, the number of newly confirmed cases has kind of remained steady, right? And so while we have seen overall our numbers declining, um, we have seen these kind of stair-step plateaus. And I think what that says to me is that 
the progress that we're seeing is not inevitable, right? Mm -hmm. we, we, we can see these brief pauses and there's nothing to say that if we are in one of these moments of a brief pause, like we are right now, that that plateau couldn't necessarily turn into an increase, right? I think about when we're in a moment like this where things are plateauing, they have been for the last few days, there's no promise they're going to decline, right? If things are kind of paused right now like they are, there is just as good a chance that our numbers could start rising again. And Sam, an area of major concern has been, obviously with the students returning, whether it's K through 12, or on Georgia's university and college campuses. What are we seeing right now in terms of confirmed cases? Are the numbers, are they still continuing to decline? Yeah, we did see some spikes earlier this year in places like UGA, Georgia Tech, uh, Georgia Southern, as students return to uh, campus for in-person classes. Um, we have seen those spikes go down, right? So it's not surprising to think that as you bring all these people together who have not necessarily been living in and around each other over the course of the summer, um, they're going to be coming from all over the place. There's a pretty good chance that some of them are going to come in infected and that's going to spread, right, as these people mm. get back together. But yeah, I, you know, we, we have seen, and this is not just in Georgia, this has been around the country, we have seen these early spikes as colleges and universities have come back together. Those spikes have been going down. Um, so it does look like that activity, that that disease spread has decreased in those settings. Last week, Georgia Governor Brian Kemp issued his latest pandemic executive order. He's issued a number of them since March, we know. This latest one, Sam, what does it say? What does it continue? And what it, did it discontinue any restrictions? Well, there weren't really any major changes. And this is maybe, you know, the governor issues these every two weeks or so. Um, he hasn't kind of uh, chosen to put them in place for longer than that. Um, and we haven't had a lot of major changes in this latest one. There were a few minor ones, say, how quickly restaurant workers can go back to work if after they've you know, had a COVID-19 diagnosis. Um, probably the biggest change came in his executive order of two weeks ago or so when he allowed uh, in-person visitation at nursing homes. Um, that was something that had been barred for many, many months during the pandemic. Of course, there are still lots of caveats with uh, allowing that uh, to go forward. Um, so, yeah, honestly, with these executive orders, they're kind of in a holding pattern. You know, mm -hmm. we've seen our numbers going down in Georgia. But like I said, sometimes we've seen that progress plateau. Um, and in the meantime, we haven't really seen any interest from the governor to either put either more restrictions in place or to lift anything right now. Mm -hmm. So we're kind of in a holding pattern, it seems like, with these executive orders. Well, it should be a big test as I believe the Falcons are going to allow few fans in for the next home game and, and some of the college Football games have slowly allowed some fans back in. So, again, another month where we have to wait and see what happens in terms of numbers throughout this state. You know, and I think so, Rose. I think that that's really where the governor is at, too. Our colleague Emma Hurt caught up with him last week at an event he did in Dawsonville. Um, and, you know, he did kind of telegraph that we might see things open up a little bit more if we continue to keep our numbers in good shape. But, you know, the governor expressed that we're kind of in the slog right now, right? He said he knows it's very hard for people to keep doing things like wearing masks and staying away from people. Um, but when we get complacent, that's when we see our cases start to go up. So I think the really important thing to think about going forward is, you know, individuals, you and me, Rose, our listeners, we all have a lot of responsibility here. We can kind of keep this thing under control. But I think our leaders do, too. 
I think it's it's very you know important to say that if our governor decides to open things back up a little bit more, it's not unreasonable to think that we could see disease increase. So you know there there are lots of people who hold the reins here. WABE health reporter and host of the podcast, did you wash your hands, Sam Whitehead? Sam, as always, I really appreciate you taking the time. Good to be with you, Russ. And a few programming notes: we could learn more regarding the president's condition. At any time this afternoon, WABE will cut to live coverage from NPR if indeed that happens. Also, some other programming news for Closer Look this week. Conversations with some familiar and notable guests all related in some way or another to current events. Now, Hank Klibanoff joins me, of course. He's a veteran journalist, Pulitzer Prize winning author, and Peabody Award winning podcast host of WABE's own Buried Truths podcast. Now, this season, Hank and his Emory Research students Well, they're going to tell the story of Ahmaud Arbery, a young black man jogging in a neighborhood. Arbery would be followed by three white men and then shot and killed by two of them. This taking place this year, back in February, down in Glynn County, Georgia. Now, the podcast features many interviews, including this one with Jim Barger. He's a St. Simons-based lawyer who spent months on Sapelo Island studying Gullah Geechee culture. I always felt like St. Simons and the Golden Isles belonged to the Geechees. And so this idea that a descendant of the Geechees couldn't run wherever he wanted to run. It infuriated me and still does because black people made the Golden Isles what it is. Anything good here was tilled up and changed and created by black people that were brought here as slaves. You can't understand or fully appreciate the Golden Isles unless you understand the heritage of the black people who have lived here since the 1600s. It's such a misinterpretation of place. Hank Klibanoff joins me later this week to talk about season three of Buried Truths. And tomorrow, former CIA director John Brennan. Well, he joins me before a virtual event with the Atlanta History Center and Acapella Books on his new book, Undaunted. You will recall back in 2017 when Brennan testified before the House Intelligence Committee regarding the possibility of Russia meddling in the 2016 presidential election and possible interactions between Trump campaign officials and the Russian government. Did you find direct evidence of collusion between the Trump campaign and Putin in Moscow while you were there? Mr. Rooney, I never was an FBI agent, I never was a prosecutor, so I really don't do evidence. I do intelligence throughout the course of my, of my career. As an intelligence professional, uh, what we try to do is to make sure that we provide all relevant information to uh, the Bureau if there is an investigation underway that they are looking into criminal activity. As I mentioned in my opening statement, I was convinced uh, in the summer that the Russians were trying to interfere in the election. And they were very aggressive. They had, it was a multifaceted effort. And I wanted to make sure that we were able to expose as much of that as possible. But was there intelligence that said that the Trump campaign was colluding with Moscow during their campaign? There was intelligence that the Russian intelligence services were actively involved in this effort. And having been involved in many counterintelligence cases in the past, I know what the Russians try to do. They try to suborn individuals. And they try to get individuals, including U.S. persons, to act on their behalf either wittingly or unwittingly. Wait till you read the book. That's former CIA director John Brennan, and he joins me tomorrow. Also, later in the week, Black Lives Matter co-founder Patrice Cullors on the story behind the movement and why she turned her best-selling memoir into a young adult version. And finally, the Reverend Al Sharpton on his new book, Rise Up. 
as well as concerns about a fair election in November. All that this week on Closer Look. I've been busy reading. Coming up next, Fulton County School Superintendent Dr. Mike Looney as the district enters phase four of its reopening plan. This is Closer Look. Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. You can go beyond giving to impact. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. Closer Look continues now here on 90.1 WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott. Fulton County Schools, the fourth largest school district in Georgia, and right now some students in the district are returning to school for in-person learning while others attend online. And now on this day, the district is set for phase four of its tiered reopening. And joining me now to talk more about this is Fulton County Schools Superintendent Dr. Mike Looney. Dr. Looney, thanks for taking the time. I really appreciate it. It's a pleasure to be on with you. Before we get into the next phase, give an assessment through your lens, as I like to say, on how phases one through three have been. Let's start with what's been working well. Well, our teachers have really um, just exceeded my expectations. They've they've taken a really difficult situation and and made the most of it. They continue to build relationships with the students that they're serving, uh, despite the uncertainty and and anxiety that we all are facing as citizens here in, in Fulton County and challenges? Well, um, you know, the fact of the matter is that we still are in a pandemic and and our school district is no exception to that. We have positive cases that develop uh, both with our students and our employees. And and the, one of the challenges is to, to manage that, to make sure that we protect everybody to the fullest extent possible while continuing to make sure that um, our students uh, are learning. A few months ago, and I've been speaking with a lot of your fellow superintendents, uh, APS, their board has a big vote tonight. Uh, We know about Cobb County, Gwinnett. I've I've spoken to their officials. They've all said, look, what's been the challenge is how do we figure out ways to keep the staff, the students, educators, everyone who has to come into the building, bus drivers, how do we help keep everybody safe during this pandemic? There's no handbook for this, Superintendent Looney. No, there, there's not, and and I will tell you, you know, um, we're we're working on that as, as well. Um, we um, have purposefully designed and implemented a a stair step, the staggered approach, so that we can turn back on face-to-face instruction slowly and methodically while observing the data, and only when the the positivity rate in the community goes down. But there still is a lot of uncertainty. My plea to the community and, quite frankly, our employees is, is um, if you don't feel well, if you suspect that you, you know, may have COVID, if you've been exposed to somebody with COVID, if you're awaiting your test results for COVID, please don't come to school. We'll, we'll work it out um, and, and until you can return. You said you're going to follow the science, follow the data. How much weight will what your educators, you praise the teachers coming into this segment, you gave them much praise, which they deserve. So how much weight are you going to put to their what they want? 
if they don't feel that this is it's working or they, the risks are still just too high. Yeah, so you know that's a very difficult place for us to be in, um, and and so I go back to the data. Um, we really can't um, make decisions based on what people want. We we have to make decisions based on the science. And as of yesterday, we're at 101 cases per 100,000 uh, residents in Fulton County. Um, we know that there um, is risk with returning the face-to-face instruction, no doubt about it. Uh, we're offering our fam- families a choice to the fullest extent possible. But I, I must say there's also risk about not returning the mm-hmm. face-to-face instruction. Um, our, our most impoverished kids, our, uh, our students that are, are uh, most behind in, in opportunities to learn, um, desperately need to be in a, in a situation where they're face-to-face with their teacher, closing that achievement gap that we all desperately want to do. So it's about finding that balance. And, and I recognize and, and appreciate and empathetic you know, to those those employees of ours that do have fear, um, but we have to follow the science and, and not let our emotions um, make drive the decision-making process. I imagine you have, you receive feedback on both sides of this issue, those that are in favor of it and those that say, hey, wait, no, let's, no, this, the risk is too high. You give them that same assessment. Look, we will follow the science. And also given to Superintendent Looney that Fulton County has the highest number of cases, highest number of deaths in the entire state. Yeah, um, that's, a, that's a true statement. That's, you know, we were the first school district to close as a result of COVID. We were the, the first district to turn on uh, remote learning. Mm-hmm. And um, once again, we're, we're committed to following the data and the science. Um, our teachers and, and, and quite frankly, our families have done uh, a commendable job of, of helping us get back to the place um, where we can even be having a discussion about students returning to school. As mm-hmm. you know, today we started phase four, mm-hmm. which is uh, 50% of our students are eligible to come back into the buildings on any given day. We won't have 50% of our students in buildings today. Many of our families are still opting not to, uh, but we are requiring you know, face masks. We are requiring health screenings. We, we're, we're, we have additional uh, cleansing and disinfecting happening in our buildings where our, our, our schools have done a good job of signage and developing practices and plans for social distancing to the, to the extent that it's possible. But um, I, you know, I don't want to. I don't want to put a, sh- a sugarcoat on this, and that is there. There is risk, um, as with anything. Um, mm-hmm. I, every time all of us as citizens step out the door and go to the grocery store or go to get gas, there's risk associated with that, and we're trying our very best to manage that. For our listeners who may not be aware, let's dig a little deeper into phase four. So you're saying that. Fifty percent of students are eligible to come into the school buildings, but they're not required. Is that true? That's that's correct. Parents are given the opportunity, uh, and so what, the way that works is um, uh, students have been split into two different groups. Uh, the first group would come on a Monday and, and a Thursday. The second group would come on a Tuesday and a Friday, with Wednesday being a, a, a cleaning day, a disinfecting day, and and quite frankly, to give our teachers a little bit of a break uh, uh, associated with kids being, students being in their, in their classrooms. Superintendent Looney, are some educators also teaching 
students in class at the same time those kids who are online? Yes, yes, that's that's what we're currently doing. I will say that when we when we get to full time face to face instruction, once again, we're gonna our parents are still gonna have the option of what they choose, and there is a likelihood that we will uh, rebuild our our class schedules and and move students to you know, different classrooms based on whether the teacher is teaching all remote or all face-to-face. Um, every school community is a little bit different as because we're so large. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, Some of our schools might have 30% of our students that are doing face-to-face, and another school might have 70. So there's no one-size-fits-all approach here. Uh, we're just going to have to wait and see um, you know, which students actually come to school before we do a shuffle. And before I let you go, I do want to switch gears for a moment. I want to talk about sports for a second. Uh, how are you all handling sports in the district? Well, um, overall, I would say it's gone well. Uh, we have had to um, shut down shut down some athletic um, programs here and there. Uh, we've been able to, um, for the most part, limit the exposure when an athlete unintentionally um, comes and, and is sick. We had that actually happen on Friday evening. Mm-hmm where I think now it looks like three other athletes are going to be quarantined for a 14-day period. We were, we were more cautious than the Georgia High School Athletic Association had um, recommended. We waited a little bit longer. Uh, we reduced our, our practice sizes. But at this point in time, you know, you also, same thing, you have to, you have to try to balance, uh, you know, do athletes have the, the, the ability to play on the field and potentially get a look from a from a, a college and maybe go to the next level versus not playing. And so we're practicing as safely as we can. We are doing health screenings every single practice uh, and, and you know taking temperature checks and all that sort of thing. But but it's not perfect. Um, you know, many people are asymptomatic. Now you're doing health screenings. Are you mandating that everyone involved get tested? as well. We are not requiring testing because that's not a recommendation from either the local Board of Health or the, or the CDC. Mm-hmm. So uh, we are recommending um, you know, that they, they go get tested if they suspect that they have been exposed um, or if they know that they've been, been exposed or you know, do not participate in practice conditioning and or games if they um, have cold-like or blue-like symptoms. Superintendent Looney, what do you make of the controversy regarding you know, will school districts make available the numbers, the data, since you're going to be following data in terms of students, educators, staff who have tested positive? Uh, do you think that that information should be made public? To should be made public. I do, I do, and we post it on the Fulton County School District website every Monday afternoon uh, by school. Um, I think the public has a right to know. To the extent that we can let the public know without compromising the privacy of students and our staff. You know, we're we're in this together as a community. I think information is power. So the more information we can share with the broader community, the better off we all are. Explain to our listeners the Fulton County Schools closing matrix. There are three levels to this. So, um, you know, when we first developed the closing matrix um, many, many months ago now, um, it was complex. It had 16 cells in it. And we've yeah. learned since that time that we are we can more effectively manage school closings. Mm-hmm. And so if a student, as an example, um, is tested positive, that doesn't necessarily mean that the entire school has to shut down. It could very well mean that a classroom shut down or a grade level and or a school. 
And so if it's a small number of students or faculty members in the school, um, then you know, the, 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 the main thing that we have to do is contact tracing now. Mm-hmm. So determine who they might have exposed uh, that virus uh, to. And so uh, we'll close for up to 24 hours, clean the building, do the contact tracing in partnership with the Fulton County Board of Health. If it's more than three, obviously it gets a little bit more complicated and we could close up to 72 hours or longer. Mm-hmm. Uh, we closed uh, Asa G. Hilliard this last week mm-hmm. uh, because it was more complex and we needed time to do the contact tracing with the Fulton County Board of Health. They're back in business this morning. Um, and, and so, and then finally, the third phase is if the Fulton County Board of Health recommends that we close due to the level of community spread, then certainly we will adhere to their guidance and advice and close. Dr. Looney, you of all people know the importance of education when you talk about for those students who come from underserved communities. You talked about your students who might live in pockets of poverty in the region, and that was a concern for you all wanting to get them into the classroom for those students. And then for any other student that you might feel was not logging on, were you all able to provide devices, Chromebooks, what have you, for those students, for any student that didn't have it, or even hotspots for those students who were connectivity was an issue? Great question. The answer is uh, yes. I'm so proud of our school board for leaning in and, and, and making sure that we were able to do that with the, the resources that we have. So any student in, in our district that needs a mobile hotspot because they don't have connectivity uh, can receive one directly from their school. We also have issued um, devices to all students in grades two through 12. Mm-hmm. So um, pleased with that. And the K and one, we're, 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 we're putting packets together, learning packets together. And we've also uh, made lessons available on TV. And what about for students with special needs? So our students with special needs actually are one step ahead in the return to school uh, matrix. And so this week they've started full-time face-to-face instruction because they have the, the greatest need for additional supports mm-hmm. and their class sizes are relatively Superintendent Looney, as we wrap up, there was a parent group out of Chattahoochee Hills that was lobbying for support to have the county boundary redrawn so that they would be part of Coweta County, basically because they wanted their kids to attend school in Coweta County. Are you aware of this parent group and what do you make of that? Well, you know, I've been a superintendent for 18 years and so I've seen a lot of things come and go and I've seen groups that have been formed, uh, you know, to uh, get the way, to get an outcome that they desire. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm proud of the work that we're doing in Fulton County Schools. I don't want to disparage any of the school district, but I think we've done a commendable job, not only in the COVID crisis, but as a whole. But ultimately it's up to the taxpayers and the voters to determine you know, what boundaries are. Our commitment here in Fulton County is uh, to serve all the students that we are privileged with serving to the best of our ability. And, you know, whether that's a new boundary or, or the existing boundary is, is really, I'm indifferent to that. I just want to serve kids. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I know that's what our teachers and administrators want to do as well. Phase four begins today, which is two full days of in-person instruction per week. Face-to-face, you're still optimistic October 14th. That's the day for full-time so, in person? We're, op- we're cautiously optimistic. But, but once again, uh, we're going to follow the data. Mm-hmm. 
All right. Fulton County School Superintendent Dr. Mike Looney, as always, thank you for taking the time. I really appreciate it. I know that you all, all the superintendents, all the educators are so busy. So I appreciate you taking the time to inform our listeners. Thank you, ma'am. It's been a pleasure being on. Closer Look continues now here on 90.1 WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott. We know the COVID-19 pandemic has led so many of us, millions of us, to work from home. But this has also some unintended consequences. Experts in this area say the more and more we're all online conducting business or learning, this can lead to a rise in cyber attacks. Last week, the U.S. Treasury Department issued two warnings against cybercrime. And these warnings were issued on the first day of National Cybersecurity Awareness Month. Now, Atlanta, of course, has its own experiences with cyber attacks, even prior to the pandemic. It's one of several cities where local governments, school systems have been targeted and disabled by hackers in the past few years. So we always ask this question, what can be done to prevent this? And we usually get the same answer. You really can't prevent it. You just have to know how to manage it and maybe try to prevent it. Well, here, the Georgia Institute of Technology, Georgia Tech, recently started an entire school dedicated to answering this question and a lot more. Georgia Tech has plans to launch the School of Cybersecurity and Privacy and is led by Interim Chair Richard DeMillo. Professor, thanks for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Hi, Rose. Thank you. You know, I appreciate this is a very important topic. Even before this pandemic, here's what I had read were the major top cybersecurity threats that organizations were going to face in 2020. Cloud vulnerability, AI-enhanced cyber threats, something called AI fuzzing, machine learning poisoning, smart contract hacking, social engineering attacks, deep fake. I know maybe two of those based on the terms, but someone listening says, wow, that's a lot. Um, how far have we come in this nation through your lens and being able to, I'm not going to say stop, because you told me once before you cannot stop these cyber attacks. You have to be able to manage them and then be able to work through some of them. How far has this nation come? So that, that's exactly right, Rose. There's no, there's no point in, in saying we're going to get over um, uh, the risks that we have from, from digital technology. And, and I think you framed it exactly right. So, so as we as a society have moved um, to transform our lives digitally, and, and we're doing it right now in the middle of a pandemic, um, you know, we're going to be met with challenges. And, and some of the challenges have to do with the fact that, that, that we have assets that are, are floating around the network. We have computers that, that monitor our, our bank accounts. We, um, um, we uh, uh, conduct business. Uh, on online, and there's always someone that wants to profit uh, mm-hmm. from that. So, so the list the list of vulnerabilities that you mentioned kind of makes me think of a Walmart. So, you, when you when you walk in when you walk into Target or, or a Walmart, you see all these shelves filled with products, uh, and and that's the way the uh, um, that's the way the online world is too. There are there are folks out there that go to essentially retail websites uh, to download software packages that allow them to to um, uh, invade your systems, to invade your, your computers. Hmm. Um, sometimes it's on a big scale, a national scale. Uh, sometimes it's on a small scale, the scale of an ind- individual. Um, but but we have to adapt to that, just the, the, sa- the same way we, we adapt to all the other um, risks 
uh, in life these days. We have to be aware, we have to understand enough about what we're doing to conduct ourselves safely. So based on everything that we've just said so far, and we've scared a lot of people because that's what we tend to do when you have these types of segments, these incidents, though, seem to indicate, all right, there's a growing need for a, a workforce that's trained, we're not going to say at preventing, but dealing with these cyber attacks. And I imagine that's what's led to the founding of this new school at Georgia Tech. Yeah, it, 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 it really is. I mean, we, we, we built on um, on 20 years of investment uh, in, in cybersecurity, going all the way back to the first Sam Nunn forum, um, when we started talking about online banking in the middle, middle 90s, mm-hmm. uh, to today, when we have cloud computing and all the things that, that we didn't really even dream of back then. Um, so Georgia Tech has, has, built up, has built up a base of expertise um, that's, that's really kind of unrivaled uh, in, the, in the industry. In fact, we just were ranked uh, in undergraduate uh, programs by U.S. News and World Report. Not that we chase those kinds of, of, of rankings, mm-hmm. but it's really nice when, when, when someone says, well, all that investment that you've made has really paid off for us. Now, there's actually a shortage of folks in this area trained in cybersecurity. There's a 2019 cybersecurity workforce study that found that the U.S. workforce is facing, and this number just, it blew my mind, facing a shortage of more than 498,000 workers in this area. Yeah, so this is one of the rationales for, for forming the school. Um, uh, we know that, that, the, that the workforce has shifted uh, over the last 10 years, uh, and, and what used to be a niche area of computer engineering or computer science, or maybe something that a lawyer or a public policy person would study uh, in their spare time, uh, has turned into a career path. And so, so we're seeing students at all ages, high school students coming for first year, um, people with degrees coming back for professional um, education, even the public that wants continuing uh, uh, education and, and awareness training, uh, coming back to us with career paths that are specifically aimed at, at cybersecurity. And our challenge, I think, is to figure out how to blend that kind of education, which is a non-standard kind of education, uh, into, into the traditional experience that you would get uh, with a Georgia Tech, Georgia mm-hmm. Tech degree. Uh, we're, gonna, we're gonna do that by having, by having a, a very innovative school that spans all of Georgia Tech, reflects the institutional commitment that Georgia Tech has, has made to this. Uh, and has has the intellectual diversity, I think, to meet that challenge. If you're just joining us, I'm speaking with Richard DeMillo. He currently serves as the interim chair of Georgia Tech's new School of Cybersecurity and Privacy. And, Professor, someone listening is saying, so will someone be able to get a degree in cybersecurity and privacy? Absolutely. Absolutely. So so, so one of the things that, that we will do uh, is figure out how to weave uh, cybersecurity and privacy and safety uh, into a lot of curricula at Georgia Tech. Uh, so engineers design design things. They design uh, manufacturing systems and they have supply chains and the supply chains are vulnerable to attack. Uh, and, and so when you think about what does it take to have a supply chain be secure, it has to be a supply chain with integrity, something that someone can't sneak uh, a foreign chip or, or a listening device into a computer that's not supposed to have one. Um, and, and those kinds of problems, I think, are the things that are going to attract people to this aspect of, of, uh, of engineering and computer science at, at Georgia Tech. And, and, and we'll, we'll see this 
uh, I think essentially right away because because we have a backlog of students since the announcement was made two weeks ago. Mm -hmm. We have a backlog of students that have said, how do I get into the program? How do I get a, a degree? Undergraduate wow. degree. Sometimes it's a minor. Sometimes it's it's professional education and certification. Wow. Well, let me ask you this then. With that interest and then going back to that number I read about the shortage of workers in this industry, what about your st your faculty and staff? Where will you recruit them uh, from, well, or do you have enough right there on campus to get started? We 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 have we have we have a, a critical mass of of faculty and research staff um, between the academic side of Georgia Tech and the and the Georgia Tech Research Institute, which does um, which does sponsored research um, to get this program going. But but to be honest, we need we need the Atlanta area to to step up. So so Atlanta has become a, a hub. Uh, of innovation in cybersecurity, uh, and we plan on building on that. We plan on involving uh, industrial partners uh, and government uh, decision makers in the way that we design the program. They will teach um, uh, when called on to to, um, uh, to teach in the in the program, and we're going to monitor how well our graduates do once they once they leave Georgia Tech, uh, and feed that back to the curriculum designers so we can continue to update the programs. Professor, is there another school of cybersecurity and privacy at another institution that you all are borrowing or looking at their their curricula that you're going to implement over at Tech? So we're we're going to we're going to kind of blend together a lot of what I think are are, are good ideas. You you see um, you see bits and pieces of this vision uh, at other institutions mm -hmm. um, uh, uh, in in Augusta. Uh, next to Fort Gordon, the 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 the, the cyber, cyber school has done a really good job at interacting uh, with their with their clients at Fort Gordon, uh, and 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 we have uh, experience uh, from 20 years ago when I was when I was a dean at, at Georgia Tech in blending different interdisciplinary programs into a single unified coherent uh, undergraduate. Uh, program. So we're going to take ideas like that and put them together so that the student gets what we think is a unique experience. Now, I got to ask you, Professor, will voting and election security be part of this school? Ah, you bring, bring up my favorite, my favorite <laughs> I'm topic. just wondering, there might be some concerns. So, so, so we will, we will, uh, uh, we will take the, the, the charge of a public university to, to engage in public dialogue very seriously. And, and, and part of what we will do, um, uh, and, and, you know, we've, we've had this conversation in the past, um, part of what, what we'll do uh, is um, uh, is raise awareness across all kinds of industries, voting and and democratic processes being um, being one of them. Uh, but not because to get back to where we started this, not because we think there's any silver bullet um, that's going to fix these problems, but 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 because the awareness of the public as to what risks are are uh, going to be exposed by incorporating technology uh, into these processes is something that that deserves public discussion. By the way, Professor, for you and our listeners, speaking of security, on tomorrow's program, a conversation with former CIA Director John Brennan, who, of course, will know knows a whole lot about all of that. So um, maybe, maybe give, yeah. get him to come in and be a guest lecturer or something. I don't know. Uh, yes, absolutely. Listen, as we talk about the importance of this new school of cybersecurity and privacy, and you've already said that there's a lot of interest are you also going to make sure you it can be as diverse as, as possible in terms of not only just the students but the but the faculty as well? Yes, we have built into the plans for this for this school um, maybe the most ambitious, diverse 
um, um, faculty and and, um, uh, and and training force possible, all the way all the way from uh, uh, from programs that we use to uh, um, to get high school kids uh, into uh, into Georgia Tech um, courses mm -hmm. and and training pathways early to um, um, to the, the the centers like the Constellation Center, which which specifically aims uh, at, at bringing underrepresented minorities into mm -hmm. uh, into into Georgia Tech. We 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 are, are currently the largest producer um, of, of, of minority uh, engineers and and computer scientists in the in the country, and and we plan on building on that. Atlanta is a great platform to, to do this. I mean, there are so there are so many wonderful institutions in the in the, in the metro area. That doing something stovepipe just for the, the North Avenue campus uh, is less appealing to us than broadening out and, and, and pulling as many voices into the into the discussion as possible. You all have launched. What's next? When will students start taking classes and start being able to sign up rather to take classes? Well, they're taking, they're taking classes right now. Oh, they're already they're in it right now. We're, we're, we're yeah. So we're we're, we're uh, uh, kind of moving. Um, Moving the parts around as the as the boat is sailing, and uh, um, part of my my job is to take all of these all of these dozens of of um, uh, researchers and, and and professors who have an interest in cybersecurity, and figuring out uh, how we can how we can shift them into the program and into the school uh, in a way that that doesn't cause a lot of disruption for the classes that are currently going on. And finally, we'll end with you. Currently, you have the tag of interim chair. I imagine you'd like to see that be permanent. Uh, I'm, so I'm I, I'm at the I'm at the other end of my career, Rose. So so uh, my 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 job is to is to get the uh, get the school launched uh, and get it on on the right track into uh, to recruit a, a young um, a permanent chair who can who can take this school for the next twenty years. Nobody's really at the ever at the end of their career, Professor. I, I know, I know. My, my wife keeps telling me, telling me that. When, when are we going to retire? Um, not anytime soon, apparently. All right. Richard DeMillo, Interim Chair of Georgia Tech's New School of Cybersecurity and Privacy of First. Thank you so much for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Always good conversation and good information for our listeners. Thank you. Thank you. That's it for this edition of Closer Look, which is produced by Grace Walker and LaShawn Hudson. Our engineer is Shelly Canavy. If you missed any of today's program, it's online at wabe.org slash Closer Look. And of course, you can listen to Closer Look weeknights at 8 p.m. And listen whenever you want, because Closer Look is now available as a podcast. Just visit NPR One or your favorite streaming app and subscribe. This is 90.1 WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Local, state, national politics. WABE and NPR have the coverage you need. I'm Jim Burris, host of WABE's All Things Considered. Whether it's on the air at 90.1, streaming online, or connecting through our mobile app, WABE keeps you on top of election 2024 in what's sure to be a pivotal year in politics. And for candidates and ballot information, visit our election hub at wabe.org election 2024.